Okay, so here's how I want to start. And this is kind of preaching to the choir. You guys do a really good job with this. But for today's teaching, more than any of the other teachings, I would encourage you to be an active learner, an active listener. Um, so don't just, you know, nod and try and make me feel good while I'm teaching, but write down notes, write down things that you want to go um, look into at, after, after we finish this study. Specifically, what I would encourage you to look for as we um, pull this all together is to look for those themes of Ephesians. So look for times that Paul is repeating something that he's already brought up uh, elsewhere in the study. Uh, look for our themes of, do you guys remember what we started with? Especially uh, biblical theology themes, family and temple were two biblical theology themes that we saw throughout the whole Bible that are in Ephesians. And then, this sounds so fancy, but our systematic theology theme, union with Christ. I know you knew it, but no one wanted to be a show-off. Look for those things. Look for when we talk about power. Look when you can identify what was that context like in Ephesus um, as, we, as we close this down. All right, a chapter and a half in one week. It was a lot. Here's part of my hope as you finish Ephesians today, guys. I hope that you want to go back through and study it again. We chose to go through this pretty quickly, and you can think of it as kind of grabbing a big paintbrush and painting the big, painting Ephesians in big strokes rather than zooming in and looking at tons of details. There are so many things that we didn't cover in detail. And, and at first I kind of felt awkward about that and bad about that, but I think it's important to study the Word of God with both approaches. Most of the time, we as a women's ministry err on the side of zooming in and covering a very small amount of text in a study. Um, but So six chapters in five weeks felt really, really fast for some of us. Um, but I do think it's also good because we can just grab these big sweeping truths and promises that Paul wanted to give to us. But by all means, if you want to now start on another eight weeks look at Ephesians all on your own, I would strongly encourage that. Um, so what did we learn about this week? Well, I think part of what Paul is saying as he started on the second half of chapter five and then going into six is that Everyone has problems, and I think specifically he's saying all families have problems. Okay, the family of God. It's so good to be in God's family, but this family has problems, and we all know that, right? We are immediately thinking about the problems in our family. I mean, I think about the Johnsons, so us five, my husband Matt, my three boys, Mike and Matthias and Max, we have problems, namely that we have really big feelings, we feel everything to the nth degree. It's okay. You can laugh. You can make fun of us. I'm making fun of myself so that you guys can settle in and feel comfortable. We, the highs are so high in our house and the lows are so low. It can be quite the ride to be part of our family, but it's, it's also really fun. But then I think of the family I came from, the Hamby family. Our problems were short little legs and long torsos. Um, Frizzy hair sometimes. For the men, no hair sometimes. Those, we also have a problem with our posture. With Maybe it's part of this like leg and torso issue where if we're not paying attention, we kind of just stand like this. 
which is not very ladylike. <laughs> but we kind of hyperextend our knees, which leads to other problems where if you play any sports as a handy, you tear your ACLs. We all have problems in our families, and I think that Paul is addressing two problems in the family of God. But remember the feel of the whole letter. This is a happy letter. Paul is pretty happy, pretty upbeat, pretty energetic through all of Ephesians. And so the fact that he's bringing up these problems is not him completely changing his tune. So let's see what he's talking about. The first problem that I think he addresses in the remainder of chapter 5, what scholars call the household code, is that the family of God will fall to disorder if not instructed. Okay? So this is our very, very simple outline. First, the family of God will fall into disorder if not instructed. And secondly, the family of God still has an enemy. These are the problems in the family of God, and they began way back in the first pages of the Bible. So one more time, let's go back to Genesis 1 through 3 today, and let's think about this. We saw God reveal himself in the very first verses of the Bible to be a God of order. He takes the chaos of the unformed earth, and he brings it into order by saying, let there be, let there be. And as he formed it and then filled it, he took a chaotic world and made it full of order. But it didn't last very long. As we saw, Adam and Eve reveal that they have a bend towards disorder. In the Garden of Eden, we notice that that enemy came in, aiming the flaming arrows of evil at Eve, not just at her mind, but at her soul. And it would have been a death blow had God not intervened. So we saw that prince of the power of darkness lure Adam and Eve with a lie that order, like living in God's design, is far too restricting. He convinced them, the enemy from without went in tandem with the enemy within, and he convinced them that, ooh, living under God's thumb, living under his order, that would mean you're missing out. That's too restraining. And so he convinced them to be autonomous, to fight against the headship of God. And on the heels of creation, we see God's family fall, plummet into disorder. And the enemy wrecks havoc. This is when the problems for God's family began. So what are we to look for in the finale of Ephesians? What, what should we hope for? Well, simply, some order and some victory. And that's what we found, wasn't it? Or at least some like motivation to help us want to want God's order and some instruction on how we can find victory over the enemy. So let's start with the household code. Let's uh, start in verse 21. So I'm actually going to be borrowing one verse from last week's text. I'm just going to get us started here, starting in 521. Submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. 
Okay, do you guys remember our thesis? It's all the way back in 110 when we read that the whole point of what Paul is saying is that God is bringing everything back together through Christ. But what we find at this point in the letter is that the way those the way that we are going to come back in order or come back together is in a certain order. Do you see that? That's what he's kind of zooming in here. This is still part of that thesis. God's bringing everything back together through Christ. Everything that has been fractured is going to be mended. Everything that has been wounded is going to be healed. Everything that has been separated is going to be brought near. But it's got to come back in a specific order according to God's design. That means that the way we come together as God's family can't just be all freestyle. It can't just be based on how we're most comfortable or what our preferences are or what our church's personality is. God is showing, hey, this is my family and I have a specific order that I want it to come back in. Well, as we go through this first part of the text, let's just make a couple observations. You guys already did this this week. One observation that helps me uh, warm up to this, specifically this hard chapter on wives submitting to husbands is the verse that we borrowed from last week. What was that? 521, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Ladies, at that point, is Paul talking to wives and husbands? No. Is he, is he even just talking to, does he say men or women? No. This whole letter, he's been talking to God's big family. So the header over wives submit to your husbands is actually about a mutual submission to each other. Take an exhale, ladies. This is really comforting. This is really good news. This slows us down when we're about to bar our teeth at each other from talking about submission. We see, first of all, that the inspired word of God is calling the family of God to mutual submission. And so if you're here and you're not married, that means that this still applies to you. Or all the different situations that are represented in this room, this text applies to everyone who is in the family of God. We are called to mutually honor and respect and show deference for one another. Next observation. Think about um, who he talked to first in each of these paragraphs. First, he talked to wives, then the husbands. Then he talked to children before the parents, and then he talked to slaves before the masters. And we stopped in our homework and we said, why? Does that carry any significance? And I think it does. I think that by speaking to the most vulnerable in those pairings, he is showing them honor. He speaks first to the person who is being called to submit and then addresses the one who will be in leadership or headship over that other person. That's a big deal, guys. Again, Paul, through the Spirit, is showing that he sees the vulnerable, that God sees the least of these, that he sees the weaker vessel, and that they have respect and value. And did you even notice maybe this observation, that when he's speaking to the wives, we're told like we have like two sentences, and we don't even notice that the husbands have a whole long paragraph after the wives section. See, so often this, this little idea of wives submitting to our husbands is such a hot topic that we fail to study it in context. But when we do that, when we see this paragraph about husbands and wives 
against that backdrop of Ephesians or within the good news of God's family from this whole book, it's not as terrifying. And we find a bravery then to dig in and to look at why would God command this and how can we understand this? Not only should we see that submission is not just for the birds, but I think there's an observation here that submission is not just a feminine trait. This was in an article last month on Gospel Coalition. Submission is not a feminine trait. It is not just for us to do. It is for all the image bearers in God's family. We're all called to submission. So maybe your question is, can't we just ignore this because it must be cultural? Or can't I just ignore this because of my circumstances or whatever? And we're going to talk a little bit about that. But for right now, why don't we just say that isn't this dated? Isn't this patriarchal to hear that husbands are supposed to submit, or wives are, (laughs) Freudian slip, wives are supposed to submit to their husbands? There's a lot of ways that we could go with this conversation. We could do a very long study on this. But for the sake of understanding this book, here's what I want to say right now. Here's why I say no. This is not dated. This is not just archaic, but it's timely for us. It's because I want to speak to your intuition, ladies. I think that we all know intuitively that order is good. You don't have to be a type A person to agree with me. You don't have to have a clean home to agree with me. We know that disorder brings pain and that order brings growth and good. Here, here's just a couple examples. I, I already talked about my ACL, right? Think about anytime something in our body doesn't work and it causes pain and it becomes this domino effect. If one little thing is wrong in our body, one little hormone messenger is wrong, dominoes can just all the way down. But also think about this, guys. When this order is not obeyed in God's family, people are hurt. When God's design is perverted or fought against, then what image bearers end up doing is ruling over one another rather than serving one another. So often that's why culture hates this text. It's because we look around and we see those husbands, parents, and masters ruling over the people that God has given them to love and to cherish. Do you hear how that sounds like Genesis 1 through 3? Remember, we've been talking about that mandate. We were told to have dominion and to subdue. What were we to have dominion over? Each other? No. Were we told to rule over each other in Genesis 1 through 3? No. We were to rule and subdue nature and and creation, God's world, we were to subdue sin, but not one another. So often we think of submission with the words power and control, but that's not what we saw this week. And so why I think that this matters for us in 2021, even though we all have different stories with being married or not being married, good husbands or bad husbands, good experiences or unhealthy experiences, It's because we know that God is good and God is a God of order. When there is disorder, pain, disease, and loss follows shortly after. That's why this is a safe text for us to read. Submission, mutual submission, it's for our good. 
And here's the last reason I see in here, because every time that we choose to honor one another, male or female, honor one another, we are showing each other Christ. We're reminding each other of Christ. What did we learn last week about Christ? That he was our head. But we also saw that this week. As we read, we saw these prepositional phrases, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Slaves, obey as you would to Christ. So every time we honor one another, we are being reminded of Christ as our head. And so that makes me think of Ephesus. It makes me actually go to that scene. What if we were actually the first recipients of this letter? And we're all sitting in this house church, and we're listening to one of the leaders read Paul's letters. And the culture that we are living in, that we have been raised in, is not one where wives or slaves or children would be addressed. And so when we hear, like, our name called, so to speak, maybe we would have been intrigued oh my goodness, wait, what? I'm being spoken to right now? This, this tone feels so different than everything that I have grown up in, that I've been experienced, that I've been experiencing. But maybe we would have a moment where we would say, wait a minute, I have to submit in Christianity? And then we hear that we're supposed to submit as to the Lord. And so maybe I would whisper to you, we're supposed to submit to Christ, but what kind of head is he? Or maybe the, the nervous sinner or the abused woman or just the woman who feels unseen in that culture, she too would have that same question. What kind of head is he? If I'm going to submit to him, I want to know what's he like. And that's why in our homework we went to John 8. And we read one of my favorite stories from the Gospels that talks about this woman who was caught in adultery and who was pulled out and encircled by a group of self-righteous men. There's no talk about the man that she was caught in sin with. We don't know where he is. But we know that those men bring her before Christ. They throw her in the middle. Can you imagine how terrifying that would be? Can you imagine what it would feel like to be abused to feel vulnerable. Ladies, can you imagine how unsafe she felt, possibly only half-dressed? Can you imagine the fear? And sadly, I'm afraid that some of you can't imagine that. I know it was true on Sunday night, and I know some of your stories today, and I know that you do know what that feels like to feel vulnerable, to feel under the thumb of someone who is unjust, to feel like you have no power and no control, to feel exposed. And we read in that story that Jesus kneels down and he starts writing in the dirt. And we don't know what he was writing Scholars like to guess about it, but what I like to think about is when he's down here, who's he eye to eye with? Her. And then he gets up and he sends them all away in their self-righteousness. And then he goes back down and he speaks to her 
and he sees her and he frees her up, ironically, by drawing her to repentance. This is the kind of head Jesus is. He has an eye for the hurting. He sees the lonely and the abused. This is why we can submit, yes, to husbands, but also to one another, because he is our head and he is safe and he knows us. Ladies, we can do this. Much more could be said about how to handle specific situations within marriages, how to handle brokenness within marriages or divorces. All of those things are worth talking about, but they are only worth talking about when we see who our head is and how good he is and how much he loves us and that he has come to us. So what's our specific application from this this first half? I think I'm just going to kind of cheat and say it's the same as last week. It has nothing to do with pressure. So if you are trying to will yourself to be a quiet wife and stop nagging, you are going to be going uphill. If you are trying to, with pressure, zap your opinions until they don't matter anymore so that you can become a submissive wife, or even to change your personality so that maybe a godly man will want to make you his wife. That is not the game for success. You will not win. That way you will burn yourself out. But neither is rejecting or bristling under this text. That will also bring pain to you. God's design is for our good and for our flourishing. And so the invitation, the specific invitation here is to look at the head of the family and to see that he is gentle and lowly. And guys, on the days when it is really hard to look around this room and to honor one another in this room, to look around your house and honor the people in your house, I think our invitation here is to look just a little bit to the side and up to Christ. You can trust Christ. And when we are focusing on that relationship, we will find it far easier to live a life of mutual submission. I think also we can remember when we want to pout, when we want to be embittered that we drew the short stick and born a woman, I think we can remember actually that we're in really good company. I think this is a pretty uh, familiar text for some of you. What do I mean when I say we're in really good company, when we're submitting, when we're honoring Philippians 2 says, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross." We moved on into the armor of God. One quick, as I left the house this morning, my family was all singing all the old VBS armor of God songs this morning to inspire me. So we must have been having good feelings this morning. <laughs> no tears this morning. <laughs> Sunday night, they sent me off all mad at me and in tears. But, you know, it was a good morning. 
One observation that I enjoyed as we started to dig into the armor of God is that we have already been told by the Apostle Paul to put on something. We were told in chapter four to put on the new self and that when we put on the new self, we will look like God's likeness, like his son. And it took me back again to last week with the prodigal son. I love that as he came, as he met his father on the road, he essentially was told to take off the old self, put on the new self. And as he put on the family robe and ring and put on sandals, did we connect the dots of who would he have looked like? His father. When we put on the new self, and now we're told to put on the armor of God, it will empower us as image bearers. Okay, let's, let's think about this, guys. We've seen so far that we were, as, as the family of God, we are given unity, that we were given gifts, and that we were given a federal head. And now we read that we were given armor. And it wasn't until this week that I actually saw kind of how the first section flows into this section, and it was very intriguing to me. So let, let me see if I can show you kind of my learning curve. So Paul starts talking about, he says, finally be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast might. Put on the full armor of God that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. And here's his reason. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. Okay, so it's like he's saying, the reason you do this is because you have an enemy. Lest you forget that you have an enemy. But could it also be that he's saying, make sure you have it right about who's your enemy? And I, I thought about that. And I'm like, so often, don't we think that the person we're being called to submit to or to honor is our enemy? Maybe we wouldn't confess it, but don't we think that way, respond that way? But then I thought, hey, we should go back to Genesis 1 through 3. Think about what happened there. Adam and Eve, as they interact with the enemy, seem to get confused about who their friend is and who their enemy is. When that snake slithers in and starts talking to them, they seem to forget that he's the enemy, even though lies come out of his mouth. And they treat him. They, they befriend him, you could say. And as he starts to kind of bait them with this idea of autonomy, no one needs to rule over you. You don't need to be under God's thumb. They then, in that moment, make God their enemy. We said that disorder brings all sorts of chaos and confusion. This is a perfect example of that. Everything's gone sideways and upside down. No one knows what's actually going on. Wait, who's my friend? Who's my enemy? But then what did God do? Right after they rebelled, he right away protects them by cursing the snake. And I saw this in a book this week. Think of this. When he says to the, to the snake, I will put enmity between you and the offspring of Eve, He's saying, I am going to make it clear that you are the enemy. He's protecting his children from that confusion. The snake is the enemy. Sin is the enemy. God is not our enemy because he has commanded us this, 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 or this. Remember way back chapter one, what did we make sure that we understood? That God is loving father. That before anything else, he is 
Father. He is self-giving. He is love. What did we learn about Christ? That he is the fountainhead of all of these blessings, seen and unseen, sweeping from eternity past to eternity future. We need to understand who our enemy is, and it is not God, no matter what the Bible asks us to do. Our enemy is not God. And we see how these things connect. So why do we then need this armor? Well, let's remember where we are in this story, the already not yet of the big story of the Bible. Guys, when Jesus came and died on that cross, he defeated the enemy, the snake. But think about it like this. My dad used to describe it to us like this. He was like, imagine that you've seen a a snake's head just like cut off. And in that moment that the head is cut off, the rest of the body is still, is the word writhing? That's a hard word, writhing around. A dangerous tail whipping around, causing fear and confusion and danger. That's kind of where we live right now. On the cross, a death blow was given to the enemy, but he's still whipping his tail around, causing anxiety and disorder, and fear among the family of God. That's why we are told to put on this armor. Now, growing up in VBS, where we would cover this all the time, we were taught, and this is true, I remember being taught, like, look at these pieces of armor. It would describe what a Roman soldier would have looked like. Anyone else, is that familiar? You know, you would draw the picture, and maybe you would cover it in glitter, so it was a fabulous Roman soldier. But we saw, you know, the helmet and the breastplate of righteousness and all those things. And we're like, oh, they're being told to picture a Roman soldier. And they're being told to put on this armor. I don't think that's untrue. But I think that there might be something even more compelling if we would take a look. Because if, I, if I'm thinking, hey, dress up like the bad guy, dress up like your enemy who hurts you, how is that empowering me to stand against evil? There's a disconnect there. Okay, but let me actually, let me illustrate this, guys. Um, think about um, Halloween, okay? Think about dressing up in a costume. And maybe you can go all the way back to your childhood and remember how awesome you felt when you were in a costume, Okay, I have, I'm a mom of three boys, so I think of a couple years ago, uh, my boys all dressed up as Ninja Turtles. And they, I did the whole thing for like 15 bucks, which was great. And those boys felt so empowered. And I believe that the streets of Corville were safer that night because of Micah and Matthias and Max. Micah took it very, very seriously. And I think actually wanted to hurt someone that night. <laughs> but Max had these little... Uh, Numchucks made out of um, toilet paper rolls. You know, he was just chewing on it most of the night. But they were convinced that they had some power. They were confident that night. Well, children grow up and costumes evolve. I do think that I'm never going to put energy into costumes again. I think we've outgrown it. But last year, as a family, we dressed up as Avengers and went to our connection group party. And we looked amazing. We all had a different role. And guess who I was? Black Widow. Thank you. Goodness. I, you were there. Yeah. And I looked awesome. And I felt awesome. I was actually looking for a bad guy for whom I could protect my family from that night. 
Why is that? It's because I was dressed like a hero. I was dressed like a warrior. My pants were way too tight for anyone's good, but I had to look like her. <laughs> Do you see where I'm going here? Probably not. <laughs> we read in Isaiah these verses that sounded a lot like Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 6. We read about these words from Isaiah when he was describing a warrior who was to come. And this is some of what he would wear. His feet would be those who would bring good news, who proclaim peace. This divine warrior would put on righteousness like a breastplate, a helmet of salvation on his head. Guys, this is the first half of the Bible we're reading this from. Long before Paul wrote his letter, this warrior, righteousness, would be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. And we said, what is going on here, guys? Whose armor are we being told to put on? the very armor of the long-awaited divine warrior, the armor of the Messiah. In this moment, we are being told that Christ would share his armor with us. Why does this matter? It continues to teach us about union with Christ, that everything that has been given to Christ is then given to us, where he has shared his inheritance with us, when he has shared his blessings with us, when he has shared his spot in the heavenly realms, he is now sharing his armor with us. And we should feel emboldened to stand, to put on that armor and to stand against the evil one. I can't help but imagine, again, what if we were all there in Ephesus, in that house church, hearing this read over us, hearing it for the first time, and throughout that day, who would we have seen marching around the streets but Roman soldiers? What sounds would we have heard as their heavy boots stomped on the ground, as their mail shirts would clink and make noises? And we would hear this description from the words of Paul, and maybe we would say, what kind of warrior is Christ? What kind of soldier is he? Because maybe we would have started to know that when Isaiah wrote those words, people believed that a warrior was coming who was going to free them from the bad guys. A warrior was coming who was going to make life easier. They believe that what Isaiah was promising and what so many other prophets were promising is a warrior who would come and make the Jewish people come back to their glory days. What kind of warrior was this prophecy speaking about? It was a warrior, Christ, who would come with power. And when they would have heard stories about his power when he drove demons into the pigs, power to heal a leper, power to calm the waters. What kind of warrior would he be? He would be the kind of warrior who would flex his might in an act of self-denial. Jesus' power 
was most revealed in the moment of his death. When he walked up the hill of Golgotha, allowing himself to be nailed to a cross so that we could live in union and communion with him. What a moment of irony. Maybe not the kind of warrior that people expected or maybe even wanted. But he would come not to just make life easier. He did not come just so that we could be freed from any any discomfort or never have to be patient for anything. He would come so that we could follow in his footsteps, mutually submitting to one another and living a life of self-denial. This this climactic moment in all the Bible is such a moment of irony. And that's where I think we end Ephesians, guys, is we see that there's irony for us to live out as well. One, I believe that when we read Paul's final introduction, he's introduced himself throughout this whole book, saying, I, Paul, a prisoner for the Lord, a prisoner in the Lord. Now he says, I, Paul, an ambassador in chains, the most ironic of all the titles. He is inviting us to believe that we too are freed to submit. And it feels a bit ironic. We are freed up to serve because of Christ's example, because of Christ's work on the cross. We are freed to serve because we know that the power that lives in us flexes most prominently in moments of self-denial. And that's why it can characterize our life. Secondly, we are freed to stand confidently in the full armor of God. You know what that might mean for you guys? That you're freed up to not run after a fight each and every day. (laughs) To not take on the weight of the world, looking to find a demon or a bad guy behind every bush, put it on your shoulders to fix that, to protect your family. We are freed up because of the work that Christ has done to stand and to stand with confidence. And our third moment of irony is that we are freed like Paul, to suffer with hope. We're freed to suffer with hope. Ladies, you house the power of God, putting to shame the temple of Artemis. You house the power of God and you bear his image when you flourish in the role that he has given you. You house the power to serve others and you hold the hope of the gospel. Our sweet news as we close the book of Ephesians is that we know how the whole story ends. We know who wins. And when we read these closing scenes in Revelation, I think we can hear what we learned this week in the finale of Ephesians. Revelation 19, starting in verse 6, listen to how Christ is described and hear Paul's 
descriptions. Then I heard like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters and like the rumbling of loud thunder saying, hallelujah, because our Lord God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory because the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, once again, clothing, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Doesn't that sound like Ephesians? Here we see Christ, our head, as the groom, and he is bringing us before the Father. And what's our status? We're holy and blameless, not because we willed ourselves to be well-behaved women, because we leaned into the identity that Christ has bought for us. We are holy and blameless because of him. It is not up to us to sanctify ourselves. We lean in to the work that Christ has done, and we will be presented as a bride. A couple verses later, we read this description of Jesus. Have the armor of God in mind. And then I saw the heaven open, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and with justice he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses, wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth, so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is our God. This is our Christ. We have all that we need in him, ladies. Let's pray. It is so good to be in your family, God. Thank you so much for adopting us, for choosing us from before time. Lord, I pray that if there is anyone in this room who wonders if they are yet in that family, that this would be their moment of salvation. That they would accept you as their head and as their husband and as their better, bigger brother, and that they would step into salvation Step into your family knowing that you have forgiven them, that you are their savior, and that you are faithful and true. Lord, we love how this story ends. Help us to stand confidently until that day. Amen. Thanks so much, guys.